Anchorage that we grew up in just seemed more like, I don't know if cohesive is the right word, but there was more of a shared experience. I mean, the fact we're all products of the Anchorage School District. And mm-hmm. right now, I mean, there's this huge shift in the world about, you know, where kids get educated and moving towards, you know, private schools and, you know, um, you know, or at home learning. And, and again, I'm not saying there aren't huge problems, but I just feel like the more we become insulated and the less you know about your neighbors, the, the less you care about this place, if that makes sense. And I think Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is shine a light on how can we grow and develop and still maintain at the end of the day, despite the fact that Anchorage is a city, we're still a small town in so many ways, and we have these shared connections. I mean, the fact that, you know, um, I went to school, you know, with uh, your brother, Cody, and Julia's mm-hmm. brother, uh, mm-hmm. Anthony, and I mean, and it all kind of adds to that that sense of of an identity, and I think... I don't want to see it disappear the way like the Fourth Avenue Theater disappears, I guess. That was Aaron Leggett. He's the president of the native village of Aklutna and the senior curator of Alaska history and indigenous culture at the Anchorage Museum. He grew up in Anchorage, so his memories of it involve all of the memorable and formative experiences that made him who he is today. The same is true for the other two people joining the conversation, Julia O'Malley and David Holthouse. They're both longtime journalists from Alaska, and from pretty much the beginning of their journalism careers, they were the voice of the people, Alaskans who reported on cultures and countercultures, crime, food, and anything else newsworthy that happened in their close-knit community. At its core, this is a conversation about what a place means to its inhabitants, how it shapes and molds them. It's about why David, Julia, Aaron, and myself, all continue to try and capture the anchorage we grew up in, before Alaska was so connected to the rest of the world. For my part, I've spent a lot of time trying to capture the essence and the feeling of the Alaska snowboard and skateboard scene of the 90s and early 2000s. Holdhouse talks about his memories of the Anchorage punk scene in the mid-90s, another lively and sometimes provocative group of people. Aaron remembers a heavy metal group of Alaska native guys who wore leather jackets, had long hair, and smoked cigarettes. They were metal and they were native. When recalling all these stories, there's fondness, melancholy, and nostalgia. A feeling Julia says is a cousin of grief. That if you become too nostalgic, you might lose track of how to listen to the present moment. So here they are. David Holdhouse. Aaron Leggett, and Julia O'Malley. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the circumpolar north through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. What is everyone's favorite restaurant in Anchorage? And Aaron, why don't you go first? Like today or, you know, or historically? 
Well, I guess since we're talking about historical Anchorage, why don't we do historical? The one that I really miss is the Corsair. Uh, it's across the street from the Captain Cook. It was this little French restaurant in the bottom of the Voyager Hotel. Yeah. Uh, it had these big booths, a lot of business, a lot of shady business had went there. <laughs> Down there, you could talk and nobody could hear you. They had the best duck LaRange and um, their banana fosters was to die for. I always thought it was kind of an old people's restaurant. And then when I actually went there, I was like, this place is awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Corsair, man, so I don't mind saying this now that they're no longer in business. But if you put on a suit, even in, when I was a junior in high school, if you put on a suit like to go to a thing at the PAC, which is nearby, obviously, and you took a date wearing a nice dress, as long as it wasn't a prom night, this would not work on prom nights. Okay, you couldn't go in a tux and a prom dress, but just like nice evening gown, nice suit, you could get served. <laughs> Gin and tonics, okay, all day long. All night long, rather. So yeah, Corsair was great. That's also the restaurant. My parents took me there when I turned 13. And like, we're like, you're about to become a teenager. This isn't going to be like smooth sailing for the next seven years. But when you turn 20, we'll come back to this restaurant. And hopefully, we'll all still be friends. And then so when I turned 20, we went back there too. So yeah, that, that's a good pull, Aaron. Agreed. Corsair. How about you, Julia? Um, oh, uh, God, that's a tough question for me because... If I say something, then other restaurants going to get mad. I mean, I have different restaurants I like for different reasons. But, um, like, I really like Fanatic, which is mm -hmm. out on Diamond, um, because it really speaks to me of Anchorage, like, modern day in this moment. Um, you know, all kinds of different constituencies come in to eat pho, which um, – which I kind of love. Plus that guy, uh, Anthony, who owns it is like, he's just one of the coolest food stories. I like him because I think he told me he used to like run, run parts for Napa and he would like go party. He was living in San Francisco. He was living in Sacramento. That's right. And, um, okay. and he would go eat pho late at night. And, um, and then he has a girlfriend. He had a girlfriend up here. He ended up coming up here. He grew up. His parents own a donut shop. And um, anyway, he's just like a passionate food person who decided to open a restaurant and was just super duper good at it. Um, and so that restaurant has expanded and now three restaurants. So I like that place. Um, but I also like La Cabana, which is in my mm -hmm. neighborhood, which I think is the oldest Mexican restaurant in town, just because of what it feels like to be in there. Um, I think Aaron and I were talking about this. Um, there's just like something about it that it has like a, it's nostalgic, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so. I think mine is going to be Club Paris. Yeah, that's just another because good one. That was your other one? Yeah. 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 I just love that place. I love the atmosphere. I love the idea that my parents went there when they were my age and younger, as well as, you know, my family and uh, friends of my family. And it's just one of those generational things. And even like there's bartenders that have been there for decades. Yeah. There's not a lot of restaurants in Anchorage that survived the 64 earthquake and are still putting out, you know, incredible food. Mm -hmm. Julia, the other day on social media, you asked, What's your favorite sandwich in Anchorage? Oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> and I was thinking about mine. And does a burger count as a sandwich? No, totally it different. It doesn't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah, we can't get into burgers because then it just like, you know, that's like a whole other 
conversation, I feel like, but. Okay. Well, then I think it's going to be the halibut sandwich from F Street. Okay. Okay. All right. I like that one. All right. <laughs> I I scanned through that post and I couldn't find your answer. Uh, well, I'm just getting ready to write this like list of like seven favorite sandwiches. Um, and I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about, you know, food and the way that we eat with memory. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm actually kind of reckoning, trying to reckon with that sort of impulse like to do things because they're nostalgic or to feel moved by things because they're nostalgic because like i don't know that nostalgia is necessarily like a, a feeling that leads you into like a true and accurate sort of place with you know judging food but mm -hmm. um anyway so i uh i have a couple of, i have seven favorite sandwiches but um one that i will mention that i like is the um which is total nostalgia is just the the BLT from, um, uh, I, I'm sorry. I have like a terrible headache right now, guys. Oh no. Um, uh, it's okay. From Lucky Wishbone. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that, but the headache makes it hard for me to recall things. Yeah, I love Lucky Wishbone. You know, I wonder what does everyone think it is about these places that we like so much that you know has that nostalgia and keeps bringing us back to them i mean i think it has to do with again it's sort of these places that have become institutions and and sort of in a pre-connected alaska you know kind of forging an identity and and i don't know some of it's probably tied to childhood but some of it's just some of it's also the unpretentiousness of these places mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think there's this thing that happens where um, I think nostalgia is like this weird cousin of grief. Like mm. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's like a thing where, you know, if you get become too nostalgic, I think you lose track of how to listen to the moment, the present moment. Mm -hmm. um, but like if I drive down uh, Northern Lights into the east side, like I can just like start going it's just like buckle into the time machine like there's max's beefy burgers that used yeah. to mm -hmm. be the you know the burger king i remember going to that when there was a pay and pack like yeah. um it and it's just like something about living in this town is every single street corner is like a hyperlink like you click on it and it takes you to somewhere else and sometimes you know I, I wonder if it causes us to miss the culture that's happening in front of us. And I think that a lot about that with the, the food I choose to eat and the geographies that I travel in terms of food in our town. Mm -hmm. Julia, it's funny you mentioned Max's Beefy Burger because, again, I grew up <laughs> on the east side. And the first when I was learning to read, the first word I learned to read on a sign was Max's. It was near my <laughs> uh, kindergarten. And I'm going to tell you that I... I never knew anybody that really went there. And it was only on my birthday last year that I actually went to Max's Beefy Burgers. Nice. And got a burger. <laughs> and it was absolutely delicious. Yeah. There um, you go. But it was just one of those places that hung on. And I never saw it. It was never like the parking lot was never full, but they must have been doing something right. It just amazed me. And I'm kind of kicking myself that I waited this long to go there. But it was also one of those places that was always there, and I just sort of took it for granted. And I think that, you know, some of those places that you think are going to be there forever aren't. Mm -hmm. And then as far as the nostalgia goes, I mean, 
I hear what you're saying, but there's also, I mean, in a way, you know, Anchorage food scene has evolved. I can remember a world before Moose's Tooth uh, and sort of gourmet <laughs> pizza, you know, and, and but it but then that becomes the new, you know, if you talk to most people, I'll bet if they say you come to Anchorage, where should you go? They're going to say Moose's Tooth or they've if they've heard of one restaurant, they've heard of Moose's Tooth. If mm-hmm. they've heard of one bar, they've heard of Chilkoot Charlie's. If they've heard of one strip club, the Great Alaska Bush Company. Mm-hmm. I wonder what everyone thinks about the saying, Alaska is 30 minutes from Anchorage. Well, I mean, I think that's become more and more true, right? Like my, my first memories of an Anchorage kick in around 1977. And, and, you know, they get more clear as it get towards 1980. But I remember Anchorage, you know, through the, through the mind's eye being a child, as being, as being like definitely living more up to that last frontier slogan, right? Meaning there are parts of Anchorage now and even the vibe in Anchorage now that feels like it could be climate aside, could be a lot of other places in the United States. And that wasn't true, I would say, in the 1970s and 80s. Um, Anchorage felt like a place unto itself in a way that it no longer does. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, right, it's like, but one of the defining characteristics of the city also, obviously, has always been its proximity to, 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 to you know, to big country, right, to wilderness, or at least mm-hmm. big outdoors terrain. So, yeah. But I miss, you know, I, I, I don't live in Anchorage anymore, but when I go back, speaking of nostalgia, I sort of miss, I miss that, that 70s, 80s vibe of really feeling like you were almost in its own country, right? Really feeling like you were separated from the mainstream culture of the, of the lower 48 in a way that I think is no longer true. Hmm. Oh, man. I don't know if I agree with that, but maybe it's because I live here now. Um, there is this way in which... Well, I don't know. Maybe it's just how I understand myself, actually. Like, I I really feel like this place does feel different. Although that idea of, like, a city's culture being something that you could define or understand or answer, like, what is the culture of this place in a few sentences, mm-hmm. that's really become refracted and changed. You know, there is no one culture. There are like these kind of spinning smaller circles within the city, Mm -hmm. but all of them are still affected by certain things like the bigness of the place by relationship to animals and land. Um, And even when the places are like, if you're looking at like a Hmong community garden in Mountain View, Mm -hmm. even so it's changed by the fact that it's here. Um, so to me, I do feel like there is like a strong, interesting sort of set of intersecting cultures that all of them are impacted by place. And also, like, I see increasingly impacted by dynamics like subsistence um, and the idea of relating to a place through harvest Um so I don't know. And I go other places. I don't feel like I make any sense there. That's one thing. Like, so when I'm here, I'm like, I get myself. I get yeah. who I am. Um, so to me, I don't really think that statement is true. Um, I think that statement ignores like just the day to day sort of eccentricities of living here. Well, I think, 
I think I agree with both Julia and David a little bit. I think as Anchorage has grown, you have to work a little bit harder to find sort of the quote unquote real Alaska. But, you know, go walk on the coastal trail or go go explore through Bicentennial Park or, uh, or far north Bicentennial and, you know, get off the trail and tell me that this is, you know, urban landscape. It, you don't have to go very far. I mean, there's people that wander off the trails and never come back mm-hmm. uh, right, you know, from a car. So I I don't subscribe to that. I think also look at the mountains that we have. Those are Alaskan mountains. I mean, look at Cook Inlet. Um, you know, you look out on the water, go out to um, Point Warns off, you know. Uh, yeah, you hear the airplanes and stuff, but you can also see some pretty pretty spectacular views if you if you try. Mm-hmm. I mean, also for me, obviously, because of growing up here, but also my family, recognizing how much has changed in the last 100 years and that 100 years ago, this was absolutely like everywhere else in Alaska in the sense of wild wilderness and fish camps and subsistence and and all that. It's just, Mm -hmm. you know, now we have, you know, paved streets and and shopping malls. But it's still my, my people's you know, traditional homeland. And as I learned Denina and understand place names, it's actually helped me to kind of move away in some ways from that idea that Anchorage is only 30 minutes from Alaska. I mean, I think that's a really cynical view that, you know, outside tourism companies develop to justify why they don't have, why they don't want their visitors in Anchorage because they can't control them through their vertical integration of their hotels and, Mm. uh, um, you know, tours and packages. Yeah, I interviewed Alaska Native artist Erin Gingrich recently, and she calls the, these places in Anchorage like Point Warrensoff or Westchester uh, little wild places. And and I really love that because, you know, in Anchorage, it, it's a city. You can interact and have a relationship with the city aspects of it, but then there's also you know, these little wild places that still exist within the city. Yeah, I think that's, that's a perfect description. And and for me, if you want that complete experience and it's still technically in the municipality, if you go up to Oklutna Lake, I mean, that's as wild a country and as beautiful as anywhere, I would argue, in Alaska. I wonder how you would describe Anchorage as part of Alaska. Um. Well, I would say, I mean, it sounds a little arrogant and but this is my perspective. I mean, I think it's at the center of Alaska. All, all, or, you know, all roads lead back to Anchorage. We're the business capital. We're the largest, you know, we're the only real city in the state where if you look at, if you get a map out and you cl- uh, plot a course, we're almost exactly the same distance from Tokyo to Washington DC we're right right like 3050 miles from each of those destinations hmm. you know anchorage is nine and a half hours from 90% of the industrialized world's populations so to me it's strategically located it's centrally located i think it has overall the most favorable weather uh in alaska david i'd say it's the big city right 
anybody in Alaska, when they, <laughs> when they want to get a taste of the big city, they come to Anchorage. And that's been true for a long time and remains so. It's the only place in Anchorage. I mean, there's really no comparison between Anchorage and Fairbanks in my mind in terms of like the second big, you know, Fairbanks being the second biggest city, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's such a step down in terms of like an, you know, urban sort of cosmopolitan vibe that Anchorage definitely has. So Anchorage is the city, the city. How about you, Julia? Do you agree with that? Um, I was just giving some thought to you know, the psychological landscape in which we live, the sort of way in which the annexation of a state away from the lower 48 causes us to sort of be so caught up in comparing ourselves to what's outside mm -hmm. that we forget to understand and define the culture that we live in. Um, and so I was thinking about that and then also just thinking about like how Anchorage is a place where everybody comes to and we carry with us the experience of being elsewhere in the state. Hmm. I mean, there is this churn from rural Alaska back to from Anchorage to rural Alaska back to rural Alaska. There is a churn of seasonal workers, you know, um, and some of that that thing of people coming from elsewhere um it sort of is what we are i mean it defines the place even that longing to go back to the village you know that urban native people feel um i, I was just sort of giving thought to the idea that like there is a longing that is sort of inherent in alaska because of its distance from elsewhere mm -hmm. and the distances that you have to travel to get anywhere so I don't really know that you could separate Anchorage. Rather, it maybe concentrates that longing mm -hmm. um, that is just part of the experience of living in the rest of the state. Yeah, and I, I feel like we all have had this experience where we either travel outside of Alaska or move outside of Alaska. And we feel, you know, I, I can only really speak for myself, but I feel a little like a fish out of water. You know, it's, it, I think it's maybe closer to, um, culture shock and you, you still have this longing for Anchorage or for Alaska. And I think you kind of touched on this earlier, Julia, where, you know, you travel out of Alaska and you're like, I, I don't really like, where do I belong? You know, what, where's my place here? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, I'm thinking of that question, Cody, and, you know, a few years ago, uh, David and I had the opportunity to do a northern indigenous hip hop film and traveling in uh, northern Norway and Finland. And both of us, I think, were struck by how much it felt at home. And it's one of the few places that I've ever been that I didn't maybe feel quite as out, you know, a fish out of water. Now, certainly mm -hmm. when it came to the language barrier, there was a little bit of that, especially with Finnish. But I was just amazed, you know, we, <laughs> we'd have these long road trips, and it felt like, you know, we're in the car going to these places. And you could get lulled into that feeling like, you know, on the like, if you're driving from Anchorage to Homer, you know, you've been in a car for four or five hours, but then all of a sudden, like, 
he'd have to slam on the brakes because there'd be a herd of reindeer that'd be running across the road or something that would kind of pull <laughs> yeah. us out of it a little bit. But it was kind of an amazing feeling, um, I thought. I don't know. What do you think, David? Yeah, man, I remember that. It, it, it's how trippy it was. Every once in a while, you kind of have to, because it was summer too, and it was like the near 24-hour light. You know, every once in a while, you got to like shake yourself to remind yourself that you weren't in Alaska. And also, we were at a festival in northern Norway where there were a lot of Alaskans also at the festival. So you'd be, you'd run into familiar faces and say, hey, what's up? And that would just right. add to the sort of like uh, cognitive dissonance of it. But the same was true. Some of the kids, like the Sami kids from Norway and, and uh, Finland would come to Anchorage for stuff at the museum or whatever, and they would remark on the same thing. Yes. How similar, like, the, the, those mountains that you were referencing, Aaron, those Alaska mountains, how much those mountains reminded them of home and the trees and the landscape. Mm -hmm. That's one thing, it seems like there's more of a sense of identity of Anchorage being like part of a greater north yeah. than mm -hmm. there was than I remember growing up. You know, but I wonder mm -hmm. if it's also true, like what the perception of Anchorage has been outside of Anchorage, meaning like one of the defining characteristics for me and my friends, I think, and, and you know, you guys may have had this too, is like you travel the lower 48 and you get asked ridiculous questions, right? Yeah. Do you live in an igloo? Do you drive a dog sled? What kind of money do you spend? Uh, things like that. Like do kids from Anchorage still get asked those questions, do you think? Or do you know, you know? It, or has reality TV just like, because it, it felt like myths of Alaska were what drove those questions. I wonder if like the, like the new myths being reality <laughs> TV is now what they get asked about. I think, I think you're probably right, David. I mean, I think also just with a more connected world, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, the only time Alaska was referenced in sort of the media was, you know, like the Exxon Valdez oil spill or Northern exposure. Uh, but now you can't turn on a TV without turning to some Alaska quote unquote reality television program. Mm -hmm. And I think it creates its own set of stereotypes, but I, I don't, I mean, I still think there's a plenty of people, maybe not in the United States, but around the world that think we live in igloos and drive dog sleds. Yeah. I think that there's, there's enough information out there now, um, that people, I think generally have a pretty good idea what Alaska looks like. Um, but I know from personal experience that you still get those questions. Maybe not like, do you ride a polar bear you know, to work? <laughs> right. But, but they do always ask about the sunlight and the darkness. Well, those are, those are true realities that that's, yeah. you know, that's one thing. And, um, you know, David was talking about, yeah, that was one difference, certainly being above the Arctic Circle in sort of a, a boreal forest was a different experience. And when we were in Finland, they were having actually record heat waves. And so hmm. um, the sun never went down and we just were just roasting and you had, couldn't go anywhere, you know. But, mm -hmm. um, but I do think that that's uh, part of, of that whole yeah, mythos. And I don't think it'll ever completely disappear. I mean, the other question, of course, I'll bet more people get questions from outside people of, do you know Sarah Palin? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Julia, I like what you said earlier about how closely related nostalgia and grief are. And so this next question, I guess everyone can interpret it, you know, how they want to, whether it's whether it's nostalgic or it's nostalgia with a little bit of grief, but maybe since I, I, you know, 
I, I'm bringing up something you just said, Julia. What do you miss about the anchorage of your childhood? Hmm. I think there was, um, well, at the time I didn't really understand the way in which I was in kind of a bubble, a sort of economic moment when there was a lot of oil money and a lot of growth, a lot of people from outside. Um, I guess there was sort of a, you know, I was talking to David Hewlin about this like a couple of months ago, but this idea of like, every morning two newspaper or every day in the morning and afternoon two newspapers arrived on everybody's doorstep mm -hmm. and there was more of a shared story of what the town was like you know for better or for worse you know there was a sort of more of a shared sense of story mm -hmm. and that and you could be like well people in anchorage are blah 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 um and that doesn't exist um, it's just not as easy to reference sort of a shared narrative. Um, and, you know, and maybe it was false to begin with. Um, but I guess maybe that feeling is something I missed. There was a tight, a tighter knit kind of feeling to the place because obviously it was smaller and it was less diverse as well when I was growing up. Hmm. Um, so people were more economically similar. For one thing, racially more similar. Um, you know, it was just like it was the oil times. It was mm -hmm. like eighties Nordstrom Cafe lunch with your mom vibe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, perfect cup too. Perfect. I know. Oh, yeah. They they it looks like they're <laughs> they're clearing it out and I don't know if they're gonna reopen it, but oh, man. I mean, I think for me, part of it is I guess it's also as you get older and you start making money, like you now have the ability to go buy stuff or, or you know, like you, you want to spend it, mm -hmm. but there's nowhere to spend it, so to speak. Uh, you know, like the walking around the mall. I mean, the Diamond Center has kind of come back quite a bit, but my God, if you walk through the Fifth Avenue Mall now, and I can remember when it opened in the middle of our brief but serious economic recession. I mean, half that mall was empty. But the food court, at least, was packed. And now you go up there and, you know, probably half, eh, maybe a third of the mall is empty, but three quarters of the food court is empty. I think it's also related to the idea of, you know, in a pre-internet, pre-cell phone, like just hanging out with your friends and going, hanging out at the mall or going on your bike somewhere, you know, that, and there is that sense of a shared experience that, that Julia I think was talking about. And I feel like we've become more isolated. Yeah. Certainly the pandemic has added to that, I would say. That too, absolutely. Yeah. You know, for me, when I think about my childhood in Anchorage, it was all about the snowboard and skateboard scene of the 90s and early 2000s. You know, it was just such a special time when so much was clicking and so many people were involved. You know, that's how I met my wife and so many of my good friends, you know, in that scene. I wonder if if everyone here, you know, were there scenes or little pockets of culture you remember seeing or being part of? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, 
uh, Cody, there was the snowboard and skate scene. You know, I, I went to school with your your older brother, and he yeah. always had the you know the the raddest and freshest you know dig <laughs> you know clothing and yeah. And it was also the growth of that sport. You know, of course, you know there was. I'm old enough to remember when you know they just started allowing snowboards at Alieska and and that whole thing. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I always think there's all sorts of scenes. You know, another one that I'm really interested in, and I know you, you've you done some interviews and we've talked about, is this whole underground punk, you know, music scene. There was a fanzines yeah. and, you know, alternative art scenes. And I mean, I think those things still exist, but maybe they're not as readily apparent. I mean, I do feel like, you know, maybe a decade ago, there was kind of a growing art scene in Alaska and then you know, the recession hit and COVID and, and everything. And it feels more fractured. Like people were, I think it goes in waves, I guess. The punk rock scene in the eighties, you know, I don't want to tread ground that you've already, you know, covered Cody. So if you have cut me off brother, but like you're asking if the part of a scene, the punk rock scene in Anchorage in the eighties is something else, man. I mean, it was like, this, there was a band called Skate Death. There's just like these unifiers. Like we had one yeah. band, Skate Death. And there was the weekly show Bomb Shelter videos mm-hmm. that everybody watched. You know, and then when there was a show at the bunker at Kincaid or when someone would somehow get the keys to Arctic Valley, it was like everyone went like it was the thing. You know, there's there was a month of hype building up to it and they would get some pretty serious like bands from the lower 48 that would come through. Yeah. DOA I know great. came up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Agent Orange. I think suicidal tendencies. Suicidal tendencies. Yeah. Yeah. They actually stayed at my house. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Because they, I think that they performed at, uh, I think King of the Hill in Thompson Pass in the nineties. And so, you know, my dad helped organize that with a couple of his buddies. And so, uh, that was pretty normal. You know, you get these, these musicians that came into town for something that, my dad was doing for borderline and then I'd be out of a room for a week. (laughs) (laughs) You know, something I was thinking about, you know, along those same lines of like parents, you know, something, something that I, I was thinking about as I was writing these questions down is, is do you remember how all of your parents talked about Alaska when you were a kid? Hmm. Um, well, so my mom was born and raised here, lived here her whole life. So I, I think she never, I mean, she always wanted to get out, uh, in a sense she didn't, um, you know, but she, if, if somebody had gave her a condo in Maui, that's where she would be right now. Mm-hmm. Um, she always used to tell me that she thought she was switched to birth with another, like a Hawaiian baby, which I always thought was kind <laughs> of humorous. But, um, for my dad who came up in the sixties with his dad who was in the air force. Um, he fell in love with Alaska, started getting into, uh, snowmobiles. And when he graduated, they moved out to Omaha. He came back as soon as he graduated and then Mm -hmm. lived up here till 2003 when he retired from the Alaska railroad. But now he, he refuses to come to Alaska during the winter. And a lot of that was, you know, having worked on the on the tracks at 40 below, he sort of had that adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I think of my my Jewish grandfather, my mom's dad, who was born in Harlem in 1920, used to walk by the Cotton Club, 
came to Alaska as a in his 20s to work on the railroad. And to to him, this was home. I asked him when he was 86 and we went back to New York to visit relatives. Um, you ever think about coming back here? And he just said, hell no. Like to him, <laughs> his little house and that he built himself in Peters Creek was home. And it okay. was the, the only place, you know, and it's kind of what kept him alive. And when he had to move out of that house, we basically knew he wasn't going to be living much longer. Luckily, he lived mm-hmm. to be 93. So he lived up until he was about 92 and a half in that house. Yeah. Yeah, how about you, Julia? Do you remember how your parents talked about Alaska when you were a kid? There's just certain things like my, I can hear my grandmother's Italian accent saying the word Alaska um, (laughs) in my head. But my, both sets of my grandparents came after the war. And I think for, both of them for different reasons alaska represented like a a sort of a place to remake themselves mm-hmm. and my grandmother was a war bride she had been in florence during nazi occupation and had met my grandfather there in this kind of desperate existential moment in the world um and they ended up coming here and they were in their 40s but it was when their lives began you know, this is when they really figured out who they were going to be. And there was a whole class of people like that who came to Anchorage after the war. And they're all dying now, you know, but they all contributed a lot of things. Um, it was a democratic state at that time. You know, um, they it was not yet uh, a state, actually, at that time. Okay. But they were they were there. You know, it was a de- it was a place where they were really involved in the making of it, the sort of defining of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pre oil. You know, it was there. The economic future of the state hadn't been written. It was a chance to, you know, carve out a new path. Right. Um, But I think about that now as I'm in my 40s, I'm just like, is my life beginning right now? Like, is this the beginning of when I'm going to do something really worthwhile? (laughs) Um, But they, you know, um, and my, on my dad's side, they were military physicians. My grandmother was like a psychiatrist. My grandfather was a doctor and, um, and they also really wanted to contribute though differently, you know? Um, So there was this sense of it being a place that was growing and, and also taking on sort of the institutions of the outside, you know, the building of institutions from outside. That was kind of what was happening here for better or for worse, right? Mm-hmm. I have this really clear memory of like, I spent the first few years of my life in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and I have this really clear memory of the summer of 1977, uh, <laughs> coming, to, coming home from a buddy's house. I think we'd gone to see Star Wars. And uh, there was this brand new bright red Ford Bronco in our driveway. Mm-hmm. And I walked in the house and my parents were, were arm in arm, sort of like square dancing around the living room, singing the theme song to that John Wayne movie, North to Alaska. Oh, wow. And they both just, and I didn't know that they'd been like <laughs> negotiating that, you know, this is at a time when the Anchorage school district was exploding. The population was growing rapidly and they were both educators. So they'd gotten offered really nice job offers if they would both move to Alaska. And so they kind of sat me down and they were like, we're moving to this place. And it was like presented as this big adventure. You know, they lived in Nigeria uh, right before I was born. And then for a few years, kind of, quote unquote, settled down in Virginia Beach. So to them, I think that this was like a way 
to recapture some of that sense of, of adventure of living in Africa, moving to a place that was really kind of on the, on the, on the edge, right? And they mean all through the 80s, I would say that to answer your original question, Cody, my parents maintained that sense of wonder about Alaska, okay. that it was a place of big adventure and that it was an adventure to just be living there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember they also said that it was like, it was going to be hard, but it was going to make me a better person <laughs> to grow up in Alaska. I think that was true. But I remember they said like, and you're going to have to drink powdered milk because milk is so expensive. And I was like, what the hell? So yeah, and that lasted about three weeks, I think. So I was like, look, you're just going to have to throw down for the barge milk, okay? I can't do this anymore. We all have milk trauma. <laughs> You know, Aaron, I think that that uh, what you said earlier about Alaska pre-oil, I think that that's such an interesting era to think about because I think that 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 mentality to to try to think about how people thought about coming to Alaska, you know, obviously that that we're not Alaska native people that were were coming to Alaska. I think it's almost impossible to to try to put our minds in that that mindset. At least I know it is for me. Well, I think it is, but you know, there's a wonderful documentary the um, the Atwood Foundation did on Vic Fisher, who's the last living signer of the um, was one of the the Constitutional Conventionists, mm -hmm. and um, you know his they were able to really capture that yeah there was that adventure aspect but i think there was also this new that alaska could be anything it wanted to be mm -hmm. you know now it was going to be hard and it was going to be tough and we're got to figure out how we're going to pay for it and obviously i mean it's still true today and it was true then there's a lot of you know federal involvement in the state but you knew your neighbors and you really could try to work towards a common good. You know, part of it is, you know, I was thinking about what we were talking about earlier about Anchorage being the center of, of everything. Mm -hmm. The one area that I don't think we are, despite our best efforts, is actually around our college system. I would mm -hmm. argue that Fairbanks is where, you know, there was a sort of this old time, old timey Alaskan gentleman's agreement. And that was Juneau is the state capital, Anchorage is the business capital, 
and Fairbanks will be the education capital. And once oil hit, that got thrown out the window very quickly. And it involves, you know, the money and time and effort spent to look at relocating the capital, mm -hmm. the billions of dollars that was put into the University of Alaska system in Anchorage and in, in Southeast. Um, and uh, just this idea that, you know, we can be everything to everyone, you know, in one place. And, and I don't think that's the, the case. And I say that, of course, as a you know, a proud graduate of UAA, but I see the the folly in some of that thinking to have all the power sort of located in one place. Mm -hmm. I have been giving a lot of thought to, you know, the resource extraction model and our deep dependence on it in an era of climate change. And I think a lot about what happens when all of these sort of dominoes start to fall? You know, we have declining oil. We know that the world is turning away from fossil fuels, however slowly. We have our fishing world is kind of really falling apart. Um, you know, we have tourism, but the dynamics of our wild places are changing rapidly. And I sort of wonder what it looks like when this stuff doesn't really function the way we've always, we've been depending on, you know, basically since mid-century and mm -hmm. before, really. But, um, you know, does it go back to, what does it look like politically? What does it look like population-wise? You know, does it go back to something that looks more like our grandparents' time? You know, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. That's like what futurologists do, you know, they think about considering all these current variables and where those lead those decisions, what happens, you know, in the future to society. I don't know. I mean, does anybody have any ideas? I, I mean, you know, I got on here prepared to talk about the past, but I will talk about <laughs> what I see in the future. I mean, it's like, what happens, what happens when uh, climate refugees start flocking to Anchorage? How's that going to impact the city's culture? Because I think that's inevitable. You know, it seems like there's going to be kind of a downturn or downtime that could be a very healthy thing when the oil runs out in a way. Well, maybe it will be more like, well, pre-oil, post-oil will be like pre-oil. But then what happens when lots of people start moving to Alaska because of the climate? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the other part in looking to the future, and that's also the geopolitics like oh yeah what's going to happen with russia is mm -hmm. a real big question to me and so i don't see i don't see the military's involvement in alaska decreasing anytime soon and if anything it will be increasing true truth also just the i mean it it seems like the steady the the steady employer is always going to be government Right. Um, there's just so many different interests in here, here in that, including increasingly just the sort of preservation of animal species. Yeah. You know, the way that outsiders view the animals here and the preciousness, we feel it, but it doesn't compare to the kind of almost idealized museum sort of way that people outside think about the state. Um, you know, that happens to me a lot where I like, I, 
people's idea about what Alaska is like. You know, when we were talking about that, I was just thinking about the idea of Alaska as this pristine place where things are unspoiled mm -hmm. and the way that has that incredible rub with how we have to spoil things in order to survive, um, how we have to put pressure on resources and animals in order to survive. Mm -hmm. um, and that when you live here, you kind of become accustomed to that tension and you s maybe sit with it differently than somebody who's not from here, who sees it so clearly as like, well, you should stop fishing the king salmon, you know, or whatever. Um, but that's kind of one of those things too, where if you live here, you have a different understanding about resource development and it's, and how necessary it is. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right. Uh, Julia, I think there is this mythology of Alaska that it's this pristine, untouched landscape. And in some ways, that's kind of BS because people have been living here for thousands of years and doing it in a sustainable way. So mm -hmm. there is a way to use resources without abusing resources. Mm -hmm. Now, what the carrying capacity of that is, is up for debate. Um, but, you know, we and we know we're going through you know climate change but something will backfill in that area and are we going to be able or allowed to adapt to that new reality is is a question that i think we haven't really dealt with or answered hmm. aaron a few years back you and i were sitting on the front lawn at the museum and we were talking about the fourth avenue theater being torn down and you said something to the effect of the people of anchorage have a hard time holding on to its history what did you mean by that I think that because of the transient nature uh, of Anchorage and people wanting to remake the place that they came from in some way, and, and I mean, they want to keep certain things, but um, there's just such a churn and turnover that um, it's hard for people to get invested. So there, what I would say is there are a lot of people that live in Anchorage and in Alaska in general, but definitely in Anchorage that live here but this isn't home hmm. mm -hmm. and so it manifests itself when you look at the way you know uh i just want the size of my pf to be pfd to be as large as possible i don't care about our education system i don't really care about the roads that much i do want the roads plowed uh, which has been an interesting <laughs> one yeah uh, that we're dealing with here that goes across the aisle um but you know just like let me stay out of my way and let me live my life is, is that mentality and so what i was talking about was there were all these people that came out you know and were lamenting about the fourth avenue theater and what a shame it is that it was being torn down mm -hmm. especially on facebook many of whom who didn't live in alaska but had grown up here but left 30 years ago but i had to remind people you know it's like the, the destruction of that theater when it was being torn down, people were like, well, that's a symbol of, of Anchorage, you know, uh, turning the corner. And I argued, no, we turned the corner in 2008 when 60% of the voters rejected spending $2 million to save that building and rehab it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the seeds uh, had been laid long before, uh, you know, the the actual physical tearing down of it uh another good example was that just down the road from the fourth avenue theater was actually the empress theater which was the first movie theater in anchorage 
uh, and until the Fourth Avenue Theater was built uh, in the late 30s, early 40s, that was the movie theater. Well, when it got torn down to create the the Legislative Information Office, or colloquially known as the Taj Mahaker, uh, <laughs> nobody said a peep. Uh, and then it's now, of course, the headquarters for the uh, Anchorage Police Department. But it just, you know, we, until I think 2011 or 2012, Anchorage didn't have a historic preservation plan for its city. Mm-hmm. If you walk through downtown Anchorage, there's only one building that I can point to that's been in the exact same location and basically looks the same as it did a hundred years ago, and that's Kimball's Dry Goods and uh, now the Kobuk. Hmm. Uh, but that little old lady that owned it, who got it from her parents, who had homesteaded and bought it back in the teens, had to fight like hell with the city in the 1980s to protect it because they wanted to bulldoze it to extend out Town Square Park. Hmm. Mm. I sort of wonder, Aaron, if that tension you know, the desire to make the place, to define it, to have it mirror outside the sort of like real old school white people desire to like civilize things. It's like this thread in our culture. Um, It's a sort of frontier mentality thing. I wonder if it causes us or blinds us from understanding and valuing our history. You know, because there is, people are new, they haven't lived here multiple generations, you know, and even the sort of idea of like prizing this kind of movement into being more sophisticated, you know, I can't yeah. exactly explain it, but no, I, I, you I know can what I'm saying? It. No, I can explain it and I can give you a perfect example of it. All right, give it and to me. And so it, it goes back to Cody's first question about restaurants, you know. We talked about, you know, some historic places, not all of them, but certainly, you know, that, that have been here for multiple generations. Look at the lines that were out the door for months to go to Olive Garden. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we got, you know, a P.F. Chang's. <laughs> and then there's nothing wrong with those places, but no. those, that, they, don't, they don't really add anything to the landscape except, I guess, maybe making it feel slightly more cosmopolitan. I mean, Mm. I'm also old enough to remember, obviously, that, you know, for decades, we were tortured by all the ads of Olive Garden and all you can eat breadsticks (laughs) and Red Lobster. So, and I would argue that probably the quality has went down over the decades. So I I can't comment what, you know, an Olive Garden was like in the 1980s. I imagine it was better than it is today. Um, So I, I think that what I would like to see is finding that that balance, you know, because on the one hand, if those places aren't coming here, it's also an indicator that our economy is is in a bit of a transition um, or, you know, also just seeing, you know, uh, new restaurants come up and actually invest in the place. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Julie and I finally got the opportunity to eat at Whiskey and Ramen. Which, I mean, right now, there's like a two and a half month waiting list to get in there for a reservation. Um, But then you look around the rest of downtown and you realize that how many restaurants we've lost, some because of the pandemic, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask David a question. Do you do you remember like having a sense that there was native people in this 
place before it was a city when you were growing up? No, not not in Anchorage. No, yeah. native people. Native people were people who came from outside Anchorage to Anchorage, hundred percent. You know. And another big change I think in Anchorage is that when I was growing up, this is the '80s when I was in high school. Like it was not cool to be native. Like if there was a native kid that could pass as white, generally speaking, they did. And I think that's that's not that's not true anymore. And that's a great thing. That's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, I'd had no, I had no sense of I had no sense of there being like that that Anchorage there was a place where there had ever been native people. I wasn't taught that. It wasn't talked about. You know, I didn't pick up any of it by osmosis. Nothing. So. Yeah, no, I, I would I would tend to agree. I mean, obviously being native and from this place, I mean that was that was true. The only place that really manifested itself was, you know, when a few times getting drugged to the old Alaska Native Hospital down on Third Avenue, which is still something that I'm trying to, to get out of my head. I wish I could. Hmm. Um but and then beyond that, the only other thing I can really think of was again, this is the eighties, and so at that time Heavy metal was like the 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 thing to be in, and so mm-hmm. I can just remember these like teenage native guys that have long black hair, they'd have a cigarette hanging out of their mouth, and you know they'd have like an Iron Maiden T-shirt and a black leather jacket, and they used to just scare the shit out of me. Like I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure they were the nicest guys, but like the image they were putting out to this little kid was so different, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, um, you know, again, Northern Exposure, but that Ed Chigliak character kind of, even though he doesn't act like it, that's sort of the archetype that I remember. Okay. You know, David, I, I have a few questions that, that involve you that I'm going to go ahead and ask right now since you got to head out here sure. soon. So yeah. do you think Anchorage shaped you as a journalist at all, David? Uh, yes, for sure. Okay. Because there were two really strong papers, uh, the Daily News and the Anchorage Times, right? It was the last great newspaper war in the country, you could you could argue. And I think that holds true. So growing up, and yeah, it fundamentally shaped me as an aspiring journalist as a kid, because I, you know, my parents took both papers, and I read both papers carefully, the metro sections and the front page, you know, the front sections and the metro sections every day, and compared and contrasted how the two papers were were uh, reporting on stories, you know, and looking mm-hmm. for the bias and the, and that that the Daily News has given the writers a lot more latitude and being stylists and all that. So yeah, that it had a profound effect on me as an aspiring writer, as a journalist, growing up, no doubt about it. Mostly because of those the two daily papers. Yeah, and and, and years ago you wrote for the Anchorage Press. Yeah, I I wonder, <laughs> do any of your stories that you wrote for them come to mind? For the press? Yeah. Uh, well, mostly I was an editor at the press, so I didn't. Most of the writing I did for the press was mm, kind of in the '90s. Let me think. I guess it says something that you know <laughs> that that, I, that nothing jumps to mind. I mean, I can think of five or six that I wrote for the Daily News right off the top of my head, but not not so much for the press. Yeah, what about the Daily News? Yeah, I mean, I remember the Daily News. The first big piece I did for them was on street gangs, like mm-hmm. street gangs from California coming up to Alaska in the '90s. You know, <laughs> and. Uh, and it was a, it was a, but it was a weird time to be working at the Daily News because it was like I started at the Daily News in the summer of '93, so it was one, one year almost to the day after the Daily News had quote unquote won the newspaper war, and the Anchorage Times had gone out of business. And it was a time when the staff of the Daily News, I think, was just kind of starting to look around and be like, "What did we win exactly?" 
you know. But it was a place. But it was a place where I could get hired as an arts arts reporter, but then be working night cops and do reporting on gangs. So the piece I remember uh, most clearly was. Um, was uh, reporting on street gangs and so i spent a lot of time at the transit center in, in uh downtown because that's where that's where members of the two gangs that were dominant at the time i'm not going to name check them but uh that's where their members would does hang one out. start with an h yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and it rhymes with yeah no i won't do that yes yes it does uh Samoan gang yeah i know exactly yes. what you're talking about and then there was a southeast asian gang you know there was yeah so it was um mm, yeah i remember that piece really well. And then I remember a piece uh, that I wrote for the Daily News, where there was a snowboarder who died in one of those um, extreme snowboarding championships in Valdez. And he wasn't a competitor, but he was a guy from Anchorage. And um, I was there covering the the event, but then like, uh, you know, became kind of a hard, heartbreaking news situation, a really tough story to cover. Yeah. Oh. How about you, Julia? Do you feel like Alaska has shaped you as a journalist? You know, um, for me, I think the story stories sort of interwoven stories of Alaska is just kind of like um it's like a subject matter that I have never really quit being fascinated with. You know, if I look at all of the relationships I've ever had, the great loves of my life, like I think this place is it. This is my longest marriage. Um Mm-hmm. And um, it keeps evolving and changing and surprising me and drawing me back when I'm tired of it. And um, and so the daily news taught me how to see the city and the, the city that way, really. Um, and then leaving the daily news because I just couldn't keep working there after the sale was like a tremendous heartbreak. But in a way, the daily news had taught me how to see a place and see the stories of a place. And I was able then to kind of, I was forced then (laughs) to see the state differently and to begin traveling in the state. Um, So I don't, I mean, I'll die here. I'll die here. Um, I don't see myself leaving this place. Um, It is the truest thing. Mm. This place is the truest thing in my life, I think. Um, I know that's a weird thing to say, but as an artist, it is like my one subject. Yeah, I like that. I wonder if you can think of any stories. Oh, man, there's so many stories. I mean, like right now I'm like in like a quagmire of a story just about um, it's not a quagmire. It's just like a deeply complicated story about the island of St. Paul. And um, it looks at, you know, St. Paul is one of the largest Aleut communities that remains. It relies completely on commercial crab fishing. Climate change has made the crabs disappear from the Bering Sea. Um, And the big thing, the people of the island are caretakers of a language that is 10,000 years old and of a history of deep, terrible exploitation. And so, you know, I mean, that's the story that comes to mind right now that I'm trying to sort out. But, you know, um, I mean, there's just so many stories. I kind of almost see, you know, the longer you work here, the longer you have these stories, like where one falls into another, falls into another, falls into your colleague's story. You know, there was this um, a million years ago when I was a cop reporter, I covered um, this incident where, 
you know, these kids were cruising the strip. They stopped. They got into a fight. One kid threw a bottle. It bounced off a car, the car, and it ended up breaking and it slit the neck of a kid killing him. <laughs> they never did find the kid who threw the bottle for a really long time. But then a few years later, we were in the middle of war and um, we had troops that had been, that were stationed here who had been, who were dying in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I ended up writing about this soldier, Michelle Ring, and Michelle had been at the scene of that and her boyfriend was the one who was killed. And at that moment, she didn't know it, but she was pregnant mm -hmm. and she died in the war and she had this kid that she left behind. Well, then a couple of years later, I ended up trying to do this profile story of this woman who was like running a house full of you know, young Samoan men in Mountain View mm -hmm. and um, turned out that her brother was the one who threw the bottle and he had just gotten caught and it was nine years later. Mm. Um, you know, but that's the whole thing. That's the weird kind of, I don't know. It's the thing that keeps me engaged in the story of the place is these kind of intersecting human stories, one bouncing into another, into another. And somehow I get to be paid to dive into them yeah. and try to make sense of them. Anyway, that was a long answer. Cody, <laughs> go. Another one I remember is when Snoop Dogg came to Anchorage in 1994. Okay. <laughs> I was, I was like, I was like the arts reporter, <laughs> I was the arts reporter for the ADN. So I was like, I was, it seemed for a while, like I was writing a Snoop Dogg story a day in like the 10 days <laughs> leading up to his concert, which was in December. It was right around the holidays. I remember. And because the city basically lost its collective mind is how I remember it. It was like this, this like infamous gang, infamous gangster rapper is going to take over the Sullivan arena and his fans, his fans who mostly it seemed like were like white kids from the Valley, <laughs> but once the concert actually went down. So that's what I remember, but you know, back one thing about harkening back to your question about like what scenes I was part of, I was part of both the punk scene and the heavy metal scene in the eighties in Anchorage. And this goes to your earlier point, Aaron, about like Anchorage kind of being the center of things is like, the metal scene in Anchorage was really strong because we would get the metal bands that we would get to play Anchorage were usually coming back or on their way to Japan. Right. So this is like top tier metal bands whose like agent was like, hey, you know what? We got to stop over in Anchorage to refuel. We might as well play a show. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we got really great bands if you're in the metal, which I was and am. You know, and it's like those kids that Aaron was describing, you know, with their leather jackets and their cigarettes, like when tickets would go on sale, everyone would line up for mm -hmm. hours in advance before the box office opened at the Sullivan Arena to like to get to get the seats. So it was like a heavy metal parking lot kind of like tailgate scene <laughs> yeah. in front of the Sullivan, like the day that tickets went on sale. I mean, it was it was great. It was great. You know, the reason I, I brought up your stories and you both as journalists, Julia and David, is because I feel like both of you have very distinctive voices as writers. And, you know, both of you writing for these publications that are in a lot of ways like voices of the city. You know, I wonder, I'm trying to get to a question here, but I wonder, Aaron, do you, do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. Being a reader of, of both of them, you know, I can think of both of their writings were like, I felt like they were speaking to me in a sense. Like I could see, it was kind of the first time I could see the town that I understood being reflected back to me and being captured and and documented mm -hmm. in, 
in very you know interesting and you know sometimes crazy ways. Uh, certainly, some of David's writing, um, <laughs> but um, but you know, there's also this this through line. I mean, I know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, David, you're the one that hired Julia, correct? Or pushed to have her hired? Something like that. Yeah, there's some truth to that. <laughs> some truth to that. I can't remember exactly when it went down. At the, at the Anchorage Press, for sure. At the Daily News, I think that I anybody that asked me, I said you should hire as soon as you can. As soon as she graduates from high school, okay. you should hire. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But All you know right. what? Let me just point out, like, both Julie and I are from Anchorage. And so when you're saying mm -hmm. that you were, you were seeing the city you recognize reflected back to you, I mean, I don't think most of the journalists that I worked with at the Daily News were from Anchorage, with the exception Absolutely. of Kim Rich. Mm -hmm. You know? It's true. So, yeah. Right. Uh, another one. Exactly. Well, and she's... Cody and I have talked about, and I got to meet her last summer, and it was one of the greatest moments of my life. Uh, <laughs> when, when Johnny's Girl came out, I mean, there was like a switch that flipped in my brain that's never been undone. Mm -hmm. uh, because the world she was writing about would sort of only be talked about in hushed tones, and here mm -hmm. she is putting it out. And the fact that she lived through it and somehow wasn't completely ruined by it is is so amazing to me you know mm -hmm. uh and you know i think going back to what julia was talking about how um you know sometimes these stories take years to develop i mean the reason she wrote that book was because of the daily news and her editor pushing her to try to understand mm -hmm. what had happened to her dad because it was not clear and um so yeah i mean she she's another one uh but you're absolutely right, David. I, I that is part of it, you know. And um, it just, as the years go on, it becomes even more rare that I see. And so I'm just sort of naturally gravitated. I'm not a journalist, obviously. I'm the only one on this uh, interview that's not. But <laughs> I can honestly say that you know, um, your guys's work has always spoke to me and and continues to. And that's what's so. Um, exciting about it is that I feel like somebody gets it because I think for so because we have so many people that aren't from here you're always trying to explain it and, and understand it and when you run into somebody who gets it and understands it and lives it and has written about it too um, there's just this natural affinity that you're drawn towards mm -hmm. yeah I can completely agree with that you know I've felt that with David's writing, with Julia's writing, and with Kim Rich's writing as well. Um, and it looks like it looks like David took off. Aaron, how do you think Anchorage has shaped you? You know, for the work you do at the Anchorage Museum, and the work you do as the president of the native village of Aklutna. Well, I mean, I think for me. You know, part of it is, and and some of it goes back to you know seeing the writings and seeing the changes and and wanting to not only affect change but also document it and and highlight how can we how can we tell a more complete story you mm -hmm. know and and I feel like you know some this really hit me I guess during the centennial of of Anchorage you know, in 2015, and I started looking around and realizing how much our city had changed in, you know, in my life and talking to other people. Luckily, you know, at the time, uh, I was working 
you know, with David and uh, he and I would have these conversations about just this feeling of, of it's, it was like hard to put your finger on, but, you know, you want to tell a more authentic story, a more inclusive story. Um, and for all these people that don't understand the place, especially also when um, you see us continue to either take no action or make the same um, or the same problems have been here for 40 years that we've never dealt with. You know, here at the Anchorage Museum, we've got Peter Dunlop Scholl's political cartoons. And there are cartoons that are all at this point now over 40 years old that look like they're ripped out of the headlines uh, of Anchorage today. You know, mm -hmm. dealing with the homelessness problem, uh, funding education, our roads, um, you know, you know, tax issues, the PFD, you know, sort of uh, oil woes, uh, fishing woes or fishing battles. And you just want to like shine a light on that to say, when are we going to grow up and actually deal with these these issues? Um that we're facing there, that if mm -hmm. anything, they become, you know, more entrenched than they were, you know, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And Aaron, in our conversations leading up to this episode, you brought up this great point about how all of our work, mm -hmm. you know, you, me, David, and Julia has in some way tried to capture the anchorage we all grew up in you know, before Alaska was so connected to the outside. Why do you all think we're doing this? You know, what are we trying to accomplish? I mean, I think for me, as we live in a more fractured and partisan and divided world, like the anchorage that we grew up in just seemed more like I don't know if cohesive is the right word, but there was more of a shared experience. I mean, the fact we're all products of the Anchorage School District. And mm -hmm. right now, I mean, there's this huge shift in the world about, you know, where kids get educated and moving towards, you know, private schools and, you know, um, you know, or at home learning. And and again, I'm not saying there aren't huge problems, but I just feel like the more we become insulated and the less you know about your neighbors, the the less you care about this place, if that makes sense. And I think mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is shine a light on how can we grow and develop and still maintain. At the end of the day, despite the fact that Anchorage is a city, we're still a small town in so many ways. And we have these shared connections. I mean, the fact that, you know, um, I went to school you know, with uh, your brother, Cody, and Julia's mm -hmm. brother, uh, mm -hmm. Anthony. And I mean, and it all kind of adds to that that sense of, of an identity. And I think I don't want to see it disappear the way like the Fourth Avenue Theater disappears, I guess. Yeah. You know, Aaron's so brilliant. And I think about, you know, the practice of reflecting on history and how it is valuable to us. But the pandemic has really accelerated a process of isolation that I wonder if history can help us to find our way back to each other. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if when we're able to recall the ways in which we connected with our neighbors, you know, growing up, the ways in which we understood neighborhood and street and community and friendship, you know, I wonder if by remembering that, you know, because we started out talking about nostalgia and the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. But it's not so much nostalgia as being able to reflect on history in such a way that we can apply its lessons to the moment we live in. And I, you know, I wonder if we, there's a way to be taught interconnectedness by reflecting on the way that we grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said, Julia. Well, Aaron, Julia, and David, those are all the questions I have for you. You know, I want to thank every one of you. Uh, I know this was kind of a challenge to get this scheduled, and I'm very happy that it turned out the way it did. Thanks, Cody. Thank you, Cody. Me too. And I, I'm. It, this has been a dream of mine, and I I hope that you know. 30 years from now, somebody will be listening back to hear what we have to say and, and can reflect on, on that and, and hopefully we'll, we'll grow as a community. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. 